Before we begin, I have a very special and important announcement, and I want you to listen carefully. Our organization, Torch, is a nonprofit, meaning that the only way we can pay for our expenses, the only way we can support our team of five rabbis and rebbitsons, our support staff, pay rent, and do all the wonderful work of Torch and all the amazing podcasts, the only way we could do that is via the generosity of our friends and our supporters. That's the only way we can pay for our expenses. And our organization has a philosophy that we don't try to fundraise every day of the year. We try to compress a year's worth of fundraising into one week. In one week, we try to raise the bulk of our operating expenses, and that week is right now. You appreciate our work. You enjoy our podcasts. You find our offerings to be interesting and educational and valuable and compelling. We need your support to keep it going. So today... I'm asking you for your friendship and support and generosity and asking you to visit givetorch.org and make a donation to our organization. The link is in the description, givetorch.org. And to sweeten the deal, every donation will be tripled. A $100 donation will equal $300 for Torch. A $1,000 donation will equal a $3,000 donation to Torch. So give what you can give and amplify your donation and help make the campaign a success. If everyone who is listening right now gives what they can give, the campaign will be a success and Torch will be bright for another year. Without your support, I wouldn't be making podcasts. Torch would fold. I'd be selling mortgages or cabinets or working healthcare or I don't know, become a lawyer. But thanks to our supporters... Torch is teaching and spreading Torah and Jewish wisdom and the rich Jewish heritage on a never-before-seen scale. Just via the podcast in 2020, we merited to do 162 new episodes, almost a half a million downloads, perennially listed on the top charts of the category of Judaism on iTunes. And I want to stress, that accomplishment is not mine. It's not even the accomplishment of the great team at Torch. That is the handiwork of all of you who supported our organization. Us together, we accomplished that goal. In our eyes here at Torch, our donors are really our investors. Whatever merit we get from the unprecedented amount of Torah that we spread, it's divided between us, the team at Torch, and the donors slash investors who support our work. So please pause this podcast and visit GiveTorch.org and give what you can give to support Torch and to support the podcasts. This is an online fundraiser. It's a matching fundraiser. Every donation will be tripled. There's a link in the description of this podcast. So I'm asking you to please pause the podcast and visit GiveTorch.org and support Torch and support the podcasts. Now, I know from previous years that some of the listeners will say, you know what, Rabbi, you convinced me. And they're going to come out of the woodwork and support the campaign when I make the annual appeal. They're going to pause the episode, go to givetorch.org, and give what they can give. But many of y'all are not going to be convinced. And they're going to say, oh no, the rabbi's doing his annual promo. He's doing his annual appeal. When will I finally get to the actual content of the episode that I want to listen to? And they're going to skip 30 seconds ahead. Oh, he's still doing it. Skip another 30 seconds ahead. Oh, when is this going to end? So every year, I try to persuade 
even the skeptics, that supporting Torch is a very worthy cause. And how am I going to persuade you this year? Well, this year I'm doing something unprecedented and probably something a bit foolish. I may very well regret this. This may be a terrible idea, but let's give it a shot. If you need help being convinced to support Torch at dftorch.org, pull out your phone, go to your contacts, type in the name Yaakov Wolby, that's me, the email address you already know, rabbiwolby.com, and you put in the phone number 713-301-3611. 713-301-3611. And then you go to your messaging app, and you send me a text with the words, I need to be persuaded. And I will call you up, and I will personally persuade you to support Torch at givetorch.org. This is very important to me. I really would love to have 100% participation of the podcast audience. I view the podcast audience as a big distributed family, and I want everyone on board to support this campaign. If you've never given to Torch, this is a fantastic time to do it. Give what you can give. If you already are part of our donor slash investor class, push yourself to give a little more. You will not regret it. Partner with me. Give what you can. 2021, you're going to be on Team Wolby, on Team Torch, Team Spreading Torah, and our rich Jewish heritage throughout the world. Support the Parsha Podcast. Support the Jewish History Podcast. Support Torah 101. Support This Jewish Life. Support the Mitzvah Podcast. Support the Ethics Podcast. Support all the wonderful, fantastic work of Torch. I know it's hard, but this is worth it. Push yourself and give what you can give at givetorch.org. You won't regret it. A few practical things. You can donate via PayPal. If you prefer to send a check, email me and I'll make it easier for you. We started accepting Bitcoin and other crypto via Coinbase. And in fact, we've already gotten several Bitcoin donations. But you'll need to email me to set that up. We'll do it. Rabbiwajima.com. Take care of it. If I have your phone number... I plan on giving you a call this week to solicit your support for this campaign. So be on the lookout for that. You could choose which podcast to support, which Torch teams to support. There's all kinds of cool sponsorship opportunities. You could support the Torch podcast microphone and studio. You could dedicate your favorite Torch podcast. You could sponsor an episode. Every donation of $360 or more will receive a signed copy of my upcoming book, Upon a 10-Stream Tarp, which is set to be released in the coming months. All that on givetorch.org. The link is in the description. Thank you for another amazing year of Torch Podcasts. I am eternally grateful to you for your support and your friendship throughout the years. Thank you for listening. Please, God, the campaign will be a smashing success, and Torch will have another fabulous year. And then about a year from now, Next March, we're going to have another tough business meeting, another annual appeal. And that's the only appeal you're going to hear from me for the next year. So thank you for listening. And now, enjoy the podcast. We spoke last time about the divinity of the Torah. And we presented what I think were several airtight arguments 
that seem to leave us with no choice but to accept that the Torah is indeed divine. We spoke about the Sinai Revelation, a unique historical event, the only national revelation claimed by any people and any religion. We spoke about the miracles of the Torah. How would you convince a nation of millions of people that they ate manna for 40 years if it didn't actually happen? We spoke about the predictions of once-in-history events that we now indeed know came true. We spoke about how the Torah is privy to information that only God would know. How would a human author know that there isn't an animal in Africa or in Madagascar that has so many kinds of unique species not found anywhere else in the world? How would a human author know that there's no animal there that has split hooves and chews its cud? It's only the ten mentioned in Deuteronomy. Or for that matter, that there are only four animals that have one of the two signs of a kosher animal. The Talmud, as well, seems to know information that really only God would know. How does it know, for example, that only kosher animals lack upper incisor teeth and the flesh near their tailbone goes warp and weft? Somehow, the sages of the Talmud knew the exact length of a lunar month down to milliseconds. And we ended off our discussion last time with a question. Is this all persuasive? Would this convince the skeptic? And my answer was, I don't know. But I do hope that the skeptic's attention would be grabbed, their interest piqued. I would think that if someone may be questioned the divinity of the Torah, or if someone is even convinced that it is not divine, our previous presentation would make them wonder, hmm, why indeed does the Torah have so many indications of divine authorship? But is it persuasive? My sense is that those are not the best kind of proofs. I think those are external proofs. They're proofs that someone who is like an outsider looking in to the world of Torah would say. What I want to do today is to try to go inside the palace doors of Torah. I want to enter the chambered vaults of Torah and see if there are any imminent proofs of the divinity of Torah that we can find from within. You know, I was thinking around this whole conversation, you know, why do I believe that the Torah is divine? Why do I believe it comes from God? It's such a sensational claim. Why do I believe it? So, of course, the easy answer and the cynical answer and maybe the accurate answer is that, well, I grew up in a Torah-observant environment, in a Torah-observant family, and I was indoctrinated. Or, to use a very provocative term, I was brainwashed. I was trained as a kid to believe in it. And you know what? Brainwashing is quite effective. And in fact, we look at Jewish literature and, you know, Jewish way of life, and it's all about brainwashing our kids, by the way, just like every other culture and society. The Midrash tells us that the first words 
that we must teach our children is Torah Tziva Lanu Moshe. The first thing we train a child to believe in is the divinity of the Torah. And we tell them about Sinai and the revelation and all the miracles and all the plagues in Egypt and all the stories, and we dramatize it. And of course, every year we get together for the Seder and we recount the episodes at the founding of our religion and nation. We, of course, are brainwashed. Everyone is. And I happen to think that that's a good thing. I think it's good parenting to educate and brainwash and indoctrinate your children. Of course, there's probably a balance. You know, how do we encourage and nudge our children to go pursue the good things and to avoid the bad things? In my opinion, with respect to dangerous things, good parenting, or maybe bad things is a better word, good parenting is a balance of protecting our children. We don't want them to have things that are harmful or dangerous, but also we want to allow them to discover things on their own. We want them to to learn via process of trial and error. We want our kids to have maybe a few nicks and bruises, but no damage and no trauma. And that's the balance. And exactly where you put the balance between the two is probably the choice of every parent. So, for example, when I was seven years old, on the festival of Purim, my dad gave me a cigarette and said, go, knock yourself out. Have a good time. I'm like, I felt so cool. I walked outside. I gave this very long drag. And, of course, I went into a coughing fit. And that's how you learn that it's probably a bad idea to smoke. And thank God I'm not a smoker. Is that a right thing to do or not? I think some people would say, well, that's maybe a bit too much. It's too dangerous. You don't want to expose your kids to that. You could argue, well, a single cigarette's not going to kill you, and maybe it's good for you to try something to know it's a bad idea. If you ban everything, you make it so much more exciting for them to covet it, let them taste it, it's not that great, and let them move on. But what about heroin? Can a parent say, hey, I want my kids to be exposed to the world. I want them to know what's out there. I want them to find out on their own what's good and what's bad. All of us, I think, would agree that if a parent allows their kid to try heroin, they should lose custody. What's the difference? The difference is that there are some things that are very dangerous and harmful and destructive And some things are adventures, and you know what? When you're a kid, when you're an adolescent, you try things, you stumble around, and hopefully that will be a positive experience, net-net, in the end. Now, you may disagree about the cigarette example, but the principle, I think, is sound, that we let kids experiment with things, try things, stumble, fall down, you ride a bike, you know what? You may get a little bloody, it's okay. That's part of growing up. But we don't let them experiment with things that are fatal or potentially fatal or highly addictive. We don't let them try out heroin. The Talmud tells us that heresy is heroin. It's addictive and it's really hard to kick this habit. And consequently, I think it's a very good idea that we don't expose our kids to heretical ideas and then say, oh, you know what, let them figure it out on their own. Let them learn to rebut it. Instead, we teach our children about the existence of God, about the divinity of Torah, about the divine mitzvos, and we let them believe it, and we indoctrinate them, and we brainwash them. 
Now many, maybe even most, they're happy with that. They're raised in a Torah environment. They never questioned it. They never encountered anything that would challenge that. And that's okay. And I don't think it's anti-intellectual. I don't think it's irrational. I don't think it's unreasonable because of what we're going to talk about today. Because people who are raised in a Torah environment, they learn about the divinity of Torah from within, not from without. And their proof to the Torah's divinity are imminent, not external, and that's what I want to share with you today. In last presentation, maybe we got your attention. Now we're going for your heart. Let us begin. So I want to start with the Mishnah that we mentioned briefly last time. The Mishnah in the book of Sanhedrin, page 90a, the first Mishnah of the final chapter of the book of Sanhedrin, tells us, Kol Yisrael Yesh Lahem Chelek Laolam All of Israel has a portion in the world to come, and it substantiates that with the verse. And of course, as we mentioned numerous times, the goal of life is to merit to the afterlife, to have a portion in eternity. All of Israel, you have it. Okay. And these are the people that lose their portion. And it gives us a list. If someone says that resurrection is not found in the Torah, it's not proven in the Torah. If someone says Torah is not divine, and Apikores, which is a heretic, what that means, the Talmud explains. Rabbi Kiva says even someone who reads external books, someone who whispers or enchants above a wound and says the verse in Exodus, this was a common practice. What they used to do is they would they would enchant and say all kinds of incantations. According to another opinion, Abashal, if someone enunciates the ineffable name of God, that too would invalidate them from the afterlife. And the Mishnah tells us there's three kings and four lay people. The three kings are Yeravam, Achav, and Menashe, and the four lay people are Bilam, Doeg, Achitofel, and Gehazi. So we have a Mishnah. It tells us that by default, all of Israel merit a portion of what to come. And then there are people that lose their portion. And the first two examples that it gives us are someone who questions or contests the fact that resurrection and the afterlife are evident in the Torah. That's the first person who loses their portion in Olam Haban, the world to come. And the second person is someone who rejects the divinity of the Torah. And thus concludes the Mishnah. Now, as we know, the Mishnah is going to be very basic, bare-bones laws. And then you open up the Talmud, and the Talmud is going to elaborate and expand on the brief lines of the Mishnah. So what does the Talmud say? So, of course, it starts in the order of the Mishnah. It starts with the person who loses their portion in the afterlife because they don't believe in the afterlife, meaning they don't believe that resurrection in the afterlife is substantiated in Scripture. And the Talmud goes on to bring around 15 different pieces of evidence that scripture, that the Torah, indeed indicates the existence of the resurrection and the afterlife. Even though it's not explicit in any verse in scripture, it is implicit in many, many verses. And the Talmud spends nine very long pages discussing the ins and outs of resurrection and the afterlife. In fact, if you look at the Mishnah, it tells us six words 
Haomer ein tchias hamesim min haTorah. The first person who loses their portion in the afterlife is someone who says that tchias hamesim, the resurrection, which is another name for the beginning of the afterlife, is not min haTorah. It's not from the Torah. It's not found in Scripture. So just for kicks. I actually checked. We have six words of the Mishnah. We have nine pages of the Talmud to explain, to elucidate those six words of the Mishnah. So how many words in the Talmud are used to explain, are used to explain the six words of the Mishnah from Sanhedrin 90a to Sanhedrin 99a? So I counted. I actually used the computer to help me. And the answer is 11,778. So it's a rate of 1,900 plus, 1,963 words in the Talmud for each word in the Mishnah. And as we know, of course, the words of the Talmud are all pregnant with meaning and and insight and depth. The Talmud invests an incredible amount of time painstakingly explaining the ideas of the afterlife and resurrection. Of course, as it always does, it goes off on tangents. It segues from topic to related topic. It circles back to the original topic. And when we, please God, get to the 12th and 13th principle of the 13 principles of faith, we are going to be tapping into this wonderful, vast sea of Talmud from Sanhedrin 90a to Sanhedrin 99a. Finally, we get to 99a, and it's time to unpack the next part of the Mishnah, Namely, the second person who loses their portion in the afterlife, someone who questions or rejects or repudiates the divinity of the Torah. Now, to be consistent, you would imagine that just like the Talmud spends all kinds of effort proving the Torah roots of resurrection in the afterlife, it would also spend lots of time proving the divinity of the Torah. And it kind of does. But it's really interesting to see how it does it. This is how it begins. So again, the Talmud is explaining the Mishnah. The Mishnah says, all of Israel's portion will come, with the exception of someone who says that the Torah is not divine. This is how it begins to explain it. Again, Talmud Sanhedrin 99a, towards the bottom. It quotes a verse in the book of Numbers, chapter 15, verse 31, Kidvar Hashem Baza. For the word of God, he has disdained. And he violated his commandment. He will surely be cut off from the Jewish people. If you're cut off from the Jewish people, you're dissociated, you're disenfranchised, you're excommunicated from the Jewish people, you lose your portion in the afterlife. It's interesting that the way the Talmud chooses to describe someone who questions the divinity of the Torah, it's not in the context of faith. It says that he's criticized because he disdains the Torah. He fails to appreciate the value of Torah. The criticism, if you examine it, is being leveled at someone who has familiarity with Torah but he disdained it. He failed to accord Torah the proper respect. He failed to see what Torah is about. So it's interesting. The, the Mishnah seems to be talking about faith. You have to believe in the divinity of the Torah. Open up the Talmud. It's talking about Dvar Hashem, Baza. This person has 
disgraced or disdained the Torah. It's about almost like respect or value for Torah. It's a very deep insight here. In the opinion of the Talmud, the only way that someone who has familiarity with Torah can emerge from Torah and claim it's not divine, it's only possible if such a person disdained the Torah and thereby failed to see the clear divinity of the Torah. The Talmud is making a very bold claim. It's telling us that the Torah itself breathes, exudes proof of its divinity. And therefore, if you immerse yourself in Torah and you properly assess it from within, you'll come to the conclusion that it's divine. Unless you have a preternatural disdain for Torah. It's a very sharp idea here. We don't need external proofs to the Torah. Look within the Torah and you will see clearly. Unless, of course, you have this disdain. How so? What are the proofs of the Torah being divine from within? Let's see what the Talmud says. Talmud says like this. It elaborates on the concept of a person who has disdain for Torah. If a person says that the Torah is divine, with the exception of one verse, that verse is not from God, it's from Moses. That too disdains Torah. And that too includes a person in the group, the ignominious group of people who lose the portion of the world to come. Moreover, if a person says the whole Torah is divine, the whole written Torah is divine, but the oral Torah is also divine, with the exception of this Kalvachomer, which is a, the fancy word for it in, in Latin, is an a fortiori proof. It's a kind of proof that is used in the Talmud. Or this Zereshava. It's another proof of the Talmud, which proves based upon similar words in different places in Scripture. So someone accepts the divinity of the entire written Torah and almost the entire oral Torah, but they question this or that. They are already included in the category of people that are, so to speak, outside of the camp. Well, what does that mean? That means that everything in the Torah is salient. There's no extra fat in the Torah that we can say, oh, this comes from a human. This is man-made. This is not divine. This is from Moshe, not from God. If you're within the Torah, you see how everything is salient, both in the written Torah and in the oral Torah. And in fact, way back when we talked about the actual text of the Rambam on the 30 30 principles, in principle number eight, he says this point. He invokes the depth and multidimensionality of the Torah and the value of every verse and the unfathomable depth that can be accessed only via diligence and prayer. He says every word of Torah has wisdom and wonders for someone who understands them. And it's as long as the land and as broad as the sea. And we have to follow the ways of King David, who prayed, Uncover my eyes so that I can see wonders in your Torah. Everything in the Torah is deep. Everything is replete 
with wisdom and wonders and secrets. And there's no throwaway verses. There's no throwaway parts, not in the written Torah, not in the oral Torah. It's longer than the land. It's broader than the sea. It's exceedingly deep. And the deeper you go into the Torah, just like a sea, the deeper you discover that it actually is. The more perfect you see it is. Again, this is talking not from the perspective of an outsider. This is talking about someone who goes into Torah. And from within, when you see the world, the vast universe of Torah from within, you see that this is not the product of man. I'm going to give you an example how I see it. I want to read you six verses in Deuteronomy. When two brothers live together, and one of them dies, and he has no son, his wife, i.e. the widow, should not marry some foreigner. Instead, she should marry her brother-in-law. He should do what's called yibum, leverite marriage. And then when they have a child, that child will be named after the deceased brother. This is an idea called Yibum, that when a man dies childless, his brother marries his widow, and that way there could be a continuing legacy for the deceased brother. Well, what if the brother does not want to marry her? Well, then they do what's called the chalitza process. It's like a certain version of of a divorce where there is the removal of the shoe and then there is some spitting, not at people, but on the the ground. So she removes his shoe and she spits in front of him and she says, he doesn't want to marry me and she can marry whoever she wants. Six verses in Deuteronomy. This is an idea we've heard of. There is a version of it, of course, in Genesis when Judah marries his daughter-in-law, the same kind of principle, even though it's not brothers, but it's the same the same idea. And we're familiar with it, the idea of Leverite marriages. Now, if you had to guesstimate how much Talmudic literature exists on these six verses and how long you can reasonably spend studying the related Talmudic literature. What would the answer be for someone who doesn't know? You have six verses in Deuteronomy. It's a law about Leverite marriages. You know, brother dies and the other brother marries it, unless the, marries, marries the widow, unless they don't want, and then there's a chalitza process. How much Talmud is there on this? You would imagine, I don't know, a page, two pages, maybe a chapter. And how long would he spend studying it? My goodness, how much is there to talk about it? Maybe a day, maybe a week, tops? Of course, the answer is nothing like that. The book of Talmud is one of the largest books of Talmud in the entire in the entire set. It's one of the most difficult books of Talmud. It's one of the most intense and challenging books of Talmud. And it's definitely one of the most awe-inspiring books of Talmud. In the in the Yeshiva world, in the Yeshiva circuit, when they get to the book of Yevamos, they typically spend a year studying it. If you happen to go to the Mir Yeshiva, which is the largest yeshiva in the world, that I had the great fortune of spending time there, they only spend a half a year studying it. That's because they go very, very, very fast. And even in a yeshiva where they spend an entire year studying it, the vast majority of the students actually don't finish the entire book. That's how much there is on this subject. Now, I have a 
special fondness for this book of Talmud because it's the first book of Talmud that I had the merit and fortune to finish. That when I finished high school, I went to a yeshiva in Israel and I'm dealing with uh, Israelis. And uh, not just any Israelis, like the sharpest ones out there. And if you've ever dealt with Israelis, they're, they're very sharp, very intense. And these students, my fellow students, have been studying like Talmud since they're like three. And their minds are like, are like razor blades. And they have been conditioned to study the whole day. You know, I was coming from like a high school. You study a little bit and then you go do some math and science and then you study a little more Talmud. It was much more of a chilled environment. And then you get there and it's like wall to wall Talmud with these super geniuses, Israeli sharp, you know, sharp razor blade minds. And I just, I couldn't hack. I couldn't, I couldn't manage it at the beginning. So we were learning the book of Yavamos, spent the whole year, first year uh, studying in Yeshiva, book, book of Yavamos. So I, um, like three days in to the session in the afternoon, I said, you know what? I'm going to finish this book. So I opened up the back of uh, of my book and I made a page there. And I said, okay, these are the 16 chapters of this book of Talmud. Let's make a list here. How many pages they contain? What's the names of the chapter? Where does it start? Where does it end? And then I write the date that I finished it first and then how many times I finished that particular chapter. And this book of Talmud, I, I really feel strongly that this is a perfect example of what we're talking about. You see an entire universe of Torah that it's not possible this was man-made. You spend, if you spend a year studying this book, it's not possible. This is not the product of, of a human. Now, later on in my life, I had the great privilege of studying this in a different yeshiva, uh, under the uh, guidance and tutelage of the greatest Talmudic lecturer in the world, Rabbi Usher Arieli, Rabbi Usher Arieli. I remember the first lecture of the semester, he said that every opportunity to study Torah, of course, is incredible. And we're not there to assign hierarchy, which Torah is more preferable than which Torah. But still, we're studying Yavamos. We're studying this amazing book of Talmud. This is special. Now, some people are terrified by this book. It's so, so deep. It's so, so intense. It's really difficult, in fact. Others are thrilled by this book of Talmud. But everyone is supremely challenged by it. Now, during this semester, there were, in six months, 122 lectures, a Sunday through Thursday, every week. And I didn't miss a single lecture. I think I was the only student, maybe one of the only students who didn't miss a single lecture. My son Akiva was born during this semester. And I said, you know what? Uh, hospitals are great and I want to stay, but I'm not missing a lecture. On the book of Yuvamos, how could he miss a lecture? In fact, I even have in my notes, like I wrote in the lecture, I found some connection between like the birth of a child and the topic at hand, I said, okay, this is so fitting for today because this on this day, my, my first son was born. I actually have in my house four notebooks with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of notes, around six to seven pages of notes per lecture, plus an index of topics that I wrote 
studying this wonderful book of Talmud? Well, if you spend six months and 122 lectures, there's only six verses in Deuteronomy. How far did you get in the book? The book has 122 pages. How far did you get? Well, we got up to page 31a, meaning fewer than 30 pages. Now, you may say, you know what? These guys in yeshiva, they're probably smoking and drinking coffee and relaxing all day. And that's why they only got to page 30a. What I'll tell you reliably is that most other yeshivos, when they study this book of, of Talmud, and they study with intensity and rigor, they get to like page 10 or maybe 15 with six months or even a year studying this this book. And I want to testify in front of y'all that the level of intensity and rigor and stunning brilliance and unfathomable depth that I experienced studying the book of Yuvamos far exceeds anything else that I've ever encountered since. This book of Talmud is an entire universe and it's six verses in Deuteronomy. When you spend six months, 10 hours a day, 15 hours a day, immersed in the universe of the Talmud of Yuvamos, you know that it's not man-made. You know, I was thinking, this is really ancient literature. What do we compare it to? So I was thinking Shakespeare. Shakespeare is, what, 500 years old? And people still read it. So we see that the Torah and the Talmud are not the only thing that endures. And you know what? Shakespeare is really interesting and it's intriguing. But there's a big difference between Torah and Shakespeare. Shakespeare is dead. Torah is pulsating with life. I think if any one of us got the opportunity to ever walk into a base medrash, to walk in a study hall of an advanced yeshiva, it could be a life changing experience. You may think, oh, you know, a bunch of rabbis or students studying, scholars, it's probably like a really nice, quiet library. And quite the contrary. You feel like you're walking into a battlefield. Everyone's sitting there in close quarters. Of course, you know, now that's a little difficult to do, but they work it out. And they're screaming at their study partners for hours and hours a day. There's intensity and rigor not found anywhere else in the world. I remember reading this this quote. I read it many, many, many years ago, but I pulled it up last night. This is the words of billionaire publisher Mortimer Zuckerman. And he went to visit the Lakewood Yeshiva, which is the second largest yeshiva in the world. And someone said, well, what's it like? I want to read you the quote of what he said about visiting the Lakewood Yeshiva. It was at the behest of a rabbi I studied with that I went and visited the Lakewood Yeshiva. I'd never been to Yeshiva before in my life. And I sort of did this out of some degree of curiosity, but more out of a sense of moral support for what had been such a central part of this rabbi's life. And I have to tell you that when I got there, I was absolutely knocked out by it. I will tell you that it was the single most intellectually active, energetic, fascinating environment I have ever witnessed. There was a sort of buzz and just sheer concentration and joy in the learning process. And it was literally visible to somebody just like me. I said afterwards, it made Harvard Law School, which I happened to have attended, looked like a kindergarten. It was absolutely extraordinary to see so many people from various walks of life 
in there for the sheer joy of learning about the religious tradition. And the sheer intensity and intellectual demands of this place made it such a unique place to visit. So for me, it was absolutely a stunning experience, and I wish everybody could have the chance not only to visit it, but to have a guide like I did. I remember a sitting yeshiva, not in the second largest yeshiva in the world, in the largest yeshiva in the world, and like the the cacophony of the sounds in the study hall made it that I'm sitting next to my study partner. We're right next to each other. We're 10 inches away from each other. And in order for him to hear me above this raucous din, I have to literally scream. I remember like finishing the, the session, which we did every day, and like my throat would ache. Cause it's like, it's like a full contact sport for your mind, for, of course, your body, and for your throat. Intensity. Shakespeare, of course, is really nice literature. But the Torah is bursting with life. And it makes you wonder, how could such ancient literature be so alive? I think when you have the privilege of seeing Torah from within, you know the answer. What do we think these students are doing? What's all the excitement about? They're trying to uncover the will of the Almighty. And what that looks like, I'm going to share it in terms that everyone knows. It's like the scientific method. Torah and science are, are similar from our perspective. You know, Torah is the Almighty's will, the Almighty's mind, and science is the Almighty's handiwork. And therefore, they're both true because they both come from the source of all truth. But of course, we're humans and we're fallible. And we don't understand the truth, but we try to figure it out. So we start off with maybe the content or the, the subject, the problem, and we develop an hypothesis. And we see if it checks out. We see if it makes sense. We compare it to the text, see if it flows logically with every step of the back and forth of the dialogue, see if it's compatible with all the commentators or with the specific verbiage of the commentators. We read Rashi with more of a fine-tooth comb than constitutional lawyers and we try to figure out why the commentators disagree and what is the essence of their disagreement. Why does the Rambam go in opposition of all the other commentators? What is animating him? We really strive to understand the core, the essence of any given idea or concept and try to understand it with scientific precision. And after duking it out with your study partner for hours, you go to hear what the great sage has to say. You hear a lecture on the same matter. And it's a total meritocracy. The greatest sage in the entire world cannot walk into a lecture and say, accept it because I'm the authority. Cannot silence opposition. And in fact, quite the contrary. The greater the lecturer, the more everyone is gunning after them to try to disprove them, try to rebut them. And he says, okay, I'll defend myself. And you have a vigorous debate, and it's all trying to find the truth. And you know what? What happens if you're the one who is able to disprove the Rosh Yeshiva, disprove the head of the Yeshiva? You're the hero. Everyone's giving you a slap in your back. Why? We're all trying to get to truth. We're all trying to figure out the will of God. 
And when you experience that from the inside, you see how it's not a fabrication. This is not man-made. This is alive. This is the will of God. Let's go back to Yavamas a little bit. Anyone who has had the great privilege of studying Yavamos in an advanced Talmudic institution is familiar with a famous question called Rabbi Akiva Eder's question. Now, of course, Rabbi Akiva Eder is one of the great rabbis of the end of the 18th and early 19th century. And his logic is, is considered to be very, very, very deep. And with one word, two words, three words, it's just difficult questions and difficult subjects and very, very profound, very deep. And he asks a question on the book of Yavamos, and it's one that really has to accompany you as you uncover the secrets and the depths of this book. I was thinking, you know, if I had to estimate how many man hours a year are spent studying this one question, toiling over this one question, I thought maybe it's got to be the millions. But even if it's not the millions, it's certainly hundreds of thousands. Think about it. You know, how many people are studying Talmud in yeshivos? And a good portion of them are studying the book of Yavamos. And a good portion of, of our immersion into this subject is going to be really working through this central question that really accompanies us throughout the whole book. So it's definitely fair to say hundreds of thousands of hours every year. And by the way, these are not dolts that are spending time on these kinds of questions. Some of the brightest minds, some of the sharpest minds in the world are working on this question. And if you drill down to the bottom line of this question and you discover what's actually at stake, what's at stake is one letter Vav in the word Litzror in the Torah. The Torah says uh, that you cannot marry your sister-in-law. Litzror. And I don't want to get into the details because we could spend literally a month talking about this. But the word Litzror asks Rabbi Tivader, it should have one fewer vav, the letter vav, sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's it's extra. I think there's no way you could spend six months, maybe even a year, maybe even two years of your life studying Yavamos and working on a question that ultimately comes down to one letter in the whole Torah and you come out after that and say, oh, the Torah is man-made. I want to tell you, I mentioned that when we were studying the book of Yuvamos, my son Akiva was born. And he's now bar mitzvah age. One of the reasons why we named him Akiva was after Rabbi Akiva Eger and this question. And I remember saying by his bris, saying, this question proves the divinity of the Torah. Now, again, to an outsider, it's like, well, I don't get it. You know, there's a question, okay, a bunch of rabbis are arguing. But if you're inside and you see what it's like to work through subjects of Torah on this level with this intensity for this long, you see how the Torah indeed is is not man-made. Now, of course, I want to point out that what we are talking about here with respect to the book of Yavamos, that's just the book that I wanted to bring about because I have so many personal memories about it. But of course, every book of Talmud gives you the same experience, gives you this indelible impression that you are studying the word of God. This world, this universe is not man-made. 
want to share with you all another memory of mine, pertinent, of course, to our subject. And again, I think this is another example of how someone who lives within the confines of Torah can see the proof to its divinity. So, of course, the Ramam says that part of this idea is to believe that every word of the Torah is divine. And there's no parts of Torah that are not divine, that come from Moshe or made up by someone else. That's what it means to believe in the divinity of the Torah. And that means that if something doesn't seem to have value or insight or wisdom, it does. And you're the one who needs your eyes uncovered, like David prayed, Golly night, uncover my eyes so I could see the wonders of your Torah. There's no part of Torah that's without insight and relevance and meaning and depth. I think this is a separate subject, of course, but I think that that's one of the benefits of studying the Kabbalah. The Kabbalah takes us a little bit down into the depths of the meaning of portions of the Torah that seem to be quite humdrum and allow us to get a peek into some of the secrets behind the curtain. You know, for example, the amount of Kabbalistic literature on the speckled and spotted sheep and goats of Jacob is astounding. Or for that matter, Lot's escape to the city of Tsoar. These are like anecdotes in the Torah that don't seem to really contribute much to the main narrative. But there's so much meaning, there's so much depth, there's so, much, so many secrets hiding behind the simplicity of the story. Everything is meaningful, everything is valuable, everything is salient. I remember in Yeshiva, again, this happened to have been that same year we studied Yavamos. I used to sit next to a gentleman from the United Kingdom. And the mirror is like a global Yeshiva. So he was in the United Kingdom. And we sat, we used to chat for a few minutes before the lecture started. This is again the largest lecture in the entire world. Largest Talmudic lecture. It might have been the largest any kind of lecture. We're talking about more than a thousand people every single day. And he told me a story. I don't remember the details of the story. I don't remember who it was. It might have been his father or his uncle or his rabbi. Someone, some great sage, was talking to uh, an individual. And they were saying, oh, you see this book of this page of Talmud? It's kind of dry. It's not exciting. This page, it's it doesn't really have so much meat on the bone. And this rabbi said, what? Uh, there's a page of Talmud that doesn't meet in the bone? I'll show you some meat in the bone. And he spent time working on that page of Talmud, and he wrote two magisterial treatises on that page of Talmud. You think there's no meat? I'll show you some meat. And he published it in his, in his book. That page of Talmud that the other guy said is dry, let me show you some of the wisdom, some of the secrets, some of the insights that we can discover. And I think when you see the Torah from within, and you see where everything is valuable and salient and connected, and you're able to zoom out and try to see a little bit of a tapestry of Torah, this world, this universe of Torah, it's all connected, it's all beautiful, you know it's divine. There's nothing extra in it, and there's nothing missing in it. There's nothing vestigial in Torah. Now, the word vestigial, of course, evokes Darwin. Darwin says, aha, I can prove to you we're not created by God because if we were created by God, everything would be meaningful. Everything would be useful. 
There'll be nothing extra. But we find all these useless parts of the body. It must mean that God was not the creator. Instead, it was some evolutionary process, and there's vestiges, vestigial organs from a left leftovers from a previous time when you were an ape. It mattered, and now it doesn't, but you still have it. You're still holding on to it. Now, the problem with this argument for the evolutionists is that using this logic, if there are no vestigial organs, then by definition, there is going to be a creator. Because wouldn't you imagine if we used to be monkeys, that we would have some leftover stuff that uh, only mattered to us when we were monkeys, when we were primates? I have some thoughts on this subject I want to share with you all. So first of all, the Torah does not tell us how God created. It just tells us God created in six days, 31 verses in Genesis. Is it possible that God used an evolutionary process to create? Why not? Evolution as a process is not theologically problematic for us. In fact, quite the contrary. You look at the literature and it seems that there are some indications that there was an evolutionary process for creation. In fact, the Ramban, the very beginning of the Torah, he describes creation of day one as being the creation of matter and energy. And he calls that term hiuli, which is a Greek term. On day one, God created something out of nothing, ex nihilo. And then the rest of the days, God took what he created on day one and repurposed it and reshaped it and refashioned it, taking something that already existed and forming it and tweaking it and turning it into something else. That sounds a lot like an evolutionary process. So vis-a-vis evolution as a replacement for God, as a process that obviates the need for God, of course, we reject that entirely. But to say that God used an evolutionary process, why not? There are indications like that. You look at the week of Genesis, it does go from more simple, shall we say, to more complex creations. Why can't God use an evolutionary process to create what he created? But that wasn't, of course, the intention of the original evolutionists. And they were talking about the vestigial organs and, you know, there's random mutations and there's some sort of biological leftovers. And the fact that there are those leftovers, it must mean that we were not designed by a creator. Now, they used to, of course, think that all kinds of organs had no purpose, like the pineal gland and the pituitary gland. They had no idea what it was. It must mean it's, it's, a, it's extra. Of course, the irony of that is that if there's nothing that's extra, then it does, by their argument, by their logic, prove that there was a designer. But regardless, I remember in 2009 seeing an article that I actually have printed out over here. And this article, I remember when I read it, I'm like, oh, I got to remember this article. So then last night I'm like, ooh, I remember that article. So I Googled it and I was able to find it, thank God. I'm actually going to put it on my website and we'll put it in the description of the podcast. The title of this article is The Appendix Fights Back, Seven Misunderstood Body Parts Explained. So it starts off, to survive, you need your heart, lungs, and liver. But what about your appendix and tonsils and wisdom teeth and other parts that you normally hear about only when they're being removed? Are they just troublemakers? Not quite. And it goes on to explain, well, actually, 
the appendix serves quite a vital function. And what's that? So let me read it to you. Two years ago, Duke University researchers proposed that the appendix, traditionally regarded as a useless, leftover, vestigial structure, actually provided a haven where good bacteria could stay until they were needed to repopulate the gut after, say, a bad case of diarrhea. In fact, the appendix may still help store good bacteria, but only in places where clean water supplies need the bacteria stored by the appendix to fight off illnesses like cholera. But give the appendix nothing to do and it gets inflamed. So basically, what people had assumed was useless was actually quite useful. Your 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 colon, your intestines, they need – the walls of intestines are lined with bacteria. And that's very critical to the digestive process. And if the bacteria gets removed, there's a little satchel, a little sac that contains all kinds of good bacteria to repopulate the sides of your intestine. And then it goes on to the gallbladder. You thought it was useless. No, it's not useless. The spleen, the tonsils, the wisdom teeth, the uvula. Uvula is the little dangly thing in the back of your throat. That actually helps people uh, swallow things. If you didn't have it, your food coming out of your nose. And here's how the article ends. Earlobes. No one knows why we have earlobes. So again, the article is in fact, it's torpedoing this whole idea of leftover organs. All these things that you thought of no purpose. Actually, no, they have a purpose. And you were just mistaken because you assumed that uh, your knowledge was complete. But no, it took us a while, but we figured out the purpose of all of them. Besides for the earlobes. Now, by the way, I would say that this too would provide an argument for the veracity of the Torah. Things that are made by God are perfect. Things that are made by men or by some sort of blind evolutionary process are imperfect. If the Torah has no vestigial, so to speak, sections or portions or verses, well then, we know it's indeed from God. It's perfect. But here's the clincher. The Talmud of the book of Ksubis, page 5b, reveals to us the function of one physical organ. Now, if you think about it, the Talmud, it's a book of Torah. Why is the Talmud telling us the function of a physical organ? That's the Talmud. Why do we have this soft part on the bottom of our ears? Why do we have earlobes? So when we hear Lashon HaRa being spoken, we could fold it over into our ears and not hear any Lashon HaRa. That's what the Talmud says. Isn't it striking that science eventually figures out the function of every organ, besides for one, besides for the earlobe? Says the Talmud, the scientists will eventually get, eventually, it may take a while, eventually they'll get, they'll be able to discover, the Almighty will uncover our eyes and allow us to discover the reasons for all the organs. But there's one organ, one part of the body that has a spiritual function. And you could spend your whole life trying to find the physical function for it, and you won't find function. And therefore, says the Talmud, I will reveal to you what the spiritual function of this organ is. The only organ that we're told why we have it is the earlobe. That's how far the science will eventually get. Says the Torah, I'll fill in those details for you. 
I had this memory last night, reading this article and then connecting it to the Talmud, the book of Subos. And to me, that's, that is something that is noteworthy, germane to our subject, that the, the, the Torah, so to speak, and science are going to complement each other and the Almighty will reveal to us the purpose, so to speak, of everything. Some we can figure out with the scientific process and what we can't, the Almighty says, okay, I'll fill you in because that's for a spiritual goal. But I still think that we have not yet gotten to the best proof of Torah from within. The best proof is always in the pudding. The proof is in the pudding. Our sages tell us that the Almighty created light on day one. But that light was too powerful, was too spiritual, was too intense. So the Almighty hid it for the afterlife. Where did the Almighty hide it? Our sages tell us that the Almighty hid the light, the primordial light of day one, not the physical light, the spiritual light, the Almighty hid it in the Torah. And anyone who immerses themselves in Torah will be able to experience a little bit of that primordial spiritual light. And I think, once you see the light, you intuitively know the Torah is divine. Our sages tell us that Torah elevates a person. There's the famous Talmud book of Psachim, page 68b, where the great rabbi was so excited on Shavuos, on the festival of Shavuos, and he said, on this day we got the Torah. And if not for the Torah, I wouldn't be elevated. There's many people in the marketplace that are called Yosef. But I was elevated via Torah. I think if we have the great fortune of actually experiencing that light, of actually being elevated by Torah, then we know it's not man-made. And I think also if we look at the people who study Torah and who are impacted by Torah and do it the proper way, Talmud, in fact, tells us that there is a way of studying Torah that's actually destructive. Zacha nasis lo samachayim. If you are meritorious, the Torah becomes an elixir of life. Lo zacha. But if you're not meritorious, nasa lo samamavis. It becomes a potion of death. It is possible for someone to immerse themselves in Torah, but do it in the corruptive fashion that it actually makes them a worse person than had they not studied Torah. But if we ever get to meet someone who's a true student of Torah, who's truly dedicated themselves to Torah in the proper way, and they're meritorious, we'll get the opportunity to meet a person that becomes complete, a person that is perfect. And something like that is a jarring experience because humans are flawed. Humans are, humans are problematic. They have all kinds of terrible things about them. Bad character, bad impulses, bad decisions, bad behavior, bad ideas. And you meet someone that's perfect, that's just good, that's just righteous, that's just pious, that's just sterling in every aspect of their behavior. And you ask yourself, who created such a person? How's it possible? And the answer is, they tapped into the elixir of life. They got access to that primordial light that's still present in the Torah today. And that's the best 
proof of the divinity of the Torah. Not some ideas on the outside. Oh, they know this information. Of course, that's true as well. But this, I think, gets to you. When you see what Torah does to a person, you see how we have access to something that comes from a different world. The first Mishnah in chapter 6 of the book of Pirkei Avos tells us as follows. Rabbi Meir Omer, Rabbi Meir says, Kola Osek lishma. If you study Torah, if you engage in Torah, Lishma, for its intended purpose, you're meritorious. Zoha Ledvarim Harbei. You merit many things, which are unnamed, by the way. Sounds cool. Continues the Mishnah. The low ode. And not only that. Ella Shekolam Kadayullah. The whole world is worthy for him. And then it starts to list off the themes that someone who studies Torah, Lishma, for its intended purpose. Besides for the many themes that are unnamed, here are the themes that are named. Nikoraya, he's beloved. He is adored. He loves God. He loves people. He gladdens God. He gladdens people. He is clothed with humility and fear of God. And he is primed to become righteous and pious and straight and trustworthy. And he is distant from sin. And he is in close proximity to righteousness. And everyone benefits from them with their good advice and counsel. And they have grandeur. And they have penetrating insight. And God reveals to them the secrets of Torah. And they become like a never-ceasing, flowing spring and like a river that doesn't stop. And they're modest. And they have a calm disposition. And they forgive anyone that does anything bad to them. And they become greatened. And they become elevated above all creatures. If you get the merit to meet a Torah scholar up close, and you see how every single one of these descriptions becomes true with them. They are free, bereft of any bad character, and they have all the good character, and they just want to help and just want to be productive and just want to be good. And they're pious and righteous and humble and happy, and everyone around them is happy, and they gladden God and they gladden people. You see how Torah perfects a person. And you see the fact that we have access to this elixir of life. Talmud tells us that being an apprentice to a Torah scholar is more important than studying Torah. Gadol Shimusha Yoser Milimuda. To be close to a great Torah scholar and watch how they behave is more important than Torah itself. Because when you see that, you see in a sensory fashion that Torah is divine. How often do we see someone with flawless character? Does it even exist outside of the Torah world? Was, I don't know, Gandhi or Mother Teresa or the Dalai Lama? Were these people people of flawless character? I don't know the answer to that. 
But I can testify that I personally know dozens and dozens of people without a single discernible flaw. These are not people that you write hymns on. These are not people who found religions. These are not people who they make movies about or who win Nobel Prizes. People that you'd pass in the street, maybe not even notice them. They don't have a coterie of people. They don't come with a posse. They're unassuming. They're humble. They're modest. But they are adorned with every conceivable possible trait that's a positive one. And they're totally free of anything bad. They're angels walking among us. Where does that come from? It comes from Torah. Torah is the Almighty's prescription for achieving perfection. And the proof is in the pudding. I could say I mentioned earlier, my, my Rebbe, my teacher, Rabbi Asherieli, is someone like this. You could ask any of the thousands of students that have gone through his lecture over the course of the last almost 40 years. He began giving lectures at the greatest yeshiva in the world, the Yeshiva, when he was like 22 or 23. Even before he was, he was like a, just a, a student. He was a teenager. And people used to wait in a line, 20, 30 people to talk to him. I spoke to people who knew him when he was 11 years old. They said, even when he was 11 years old, they said, this, this, this kid is destined for greatness. You see someone like that and you are able to witness a lecture from someone like that. If you had to make a police lineup, I'd say, you never, you don't know who this person is, but I made a police lineup. Okay. Which one of these people, five, 10 people gives the greatest Talmud lecture in the world? Probably you would guess him last. Probably. Unassuming, humble, a little bit bent over, totally gentle, uh, a, a face that almost has a glow to it. But no pomp, no shtick, no bravado, nothing. A description of like mosaic humility. And when he walks into the lecture hall, it's just a sea of students, a sea of students. And everyone sitting in every place is, is occupied. And he walks in without looking up, total humility. And he gives a lecture and you feel like you're transported back to Sinai. There's a joy and a, a tempo and an energy that's just incredible. And he presents the ideas with sharp, penetrating, rigorous brilliance. And it's total perfection. He starts a lecture, gives a lecture for an hour, doesn't stop speaking for an hour, never fumbles on a word, never has to think about what right word to say. You could tell from his cadence and tone where he's going, speaking rapid fire in Yiddish, actually, a beautiful Yiddish, if you want to get a listen to that. I would say, even if you don't understand Yiddish, just put it on. Find a clip of it and put it on and just listen to it because it'll change your life. Someone once asked him, how come you never misspeak? How come you never say a word that uh, you have to correct and say, no, I meant this word? Like, how do you have this verbal perfection? So he said, I never in my life spoke Lashon Ra. I never once said a bad word about any other person. And that's why the money gives me a golden tongue. Where does someone like that come from? One of the things that it mentions in the Mishnah is that people benefit from their advice and counsel. 
I could say I once took a taxi with him. I actually took a taxi with him a few times from the yeshiva to his house. He was going home for lunch. It's a five-minute taxi ride. And I had a problem, a vexing problem I needed advice for. And I could say within this four to five-minute taxi ride, he right away drilled down to the core of my problem, explained it better than I could explain it myself, and resolved it totally before we got to his house. And still today, almost 15 years later, I'm still benefiting from his advice. And again, total modesty, total unassuming character, no shtick, no posse, nothing. Just a person who was perfected via Torah. Where does that come from? If you get to witness such a person up close, and the closer you get to them, the more you discover. It's the opposite. A great Torah seller is someone who always tries to obscure and hide their greatness. And therefore, the closer you're able to get, the more you discover. If you have the fortune of meeting such a person and getting to know them, the idea the Torah is man-made will be forever banished from your mind. So is this persuasive? Back to our original question. I don't know if it's persuasive for everyone else. For me, it is. Again, I'm not yeshiva anymore. I'm still within the, I would say, constellation of the of the Torah universe. I think that when you see the Torah from within, if you don't disgrace it, if you don't disdain it, and you're able to, you're able to actually tap into the waters of Torah, you're able to see the great giants of Torah, you're able to experience some of the joy of advanced Talmudic inquiry, you see Torah from within, you know it's not a fabrication. No human can create this. It's indeed from the Almighty. I thank you for listening. My email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. I look forward to your questions, your comments, and your feedback.